Hello, everybody. You are listening to Why Our Dads. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I'll soon be joined by my co-host, Sarah Marshall. Why Our Dads is a show in which Sarah and I attempt to understand what the hell it means to be grown children of dads and other dad-like figures. As we do with all potentially difficult subject matter, we do so by looking at it through a pop culture lens. Today, we are going to look at Nightmare on Elm Street through the dad lens. If you know Sarah or me, you know that this one is dear to our hearts. Nightmare on Elm Street is a horror movie, sure, and it's where we first meet Freddy Krueger, the dream demon. <laughs> but there are plenty of dad issues to explore, and we do exactly that. It's about neglectful parents. It's about suffering for your parents' sins. It's about being haunted by a dad of sorts. There is so much to unpack, and we do exactly that. Beyond that, Nightmare on Elm Street came out at an extraordinarily fascinating time. It's right around when America's obsession with serial killers was starting to mature and when the satanic panic was starting to take shape. If you know Sarah's work generally, particularly her writing on Ted Bundy for The Believer or her and Michael Hobbs' work on You're Wrong About, you know that these factors play heavily into her areas of interest and study. And this is a great companion piece to a lot of her existing body of work. And one other note is that the McMartin case, which Sarah will mention later in the episode, is one of the initial phenomena that would metastasize into what we now know as the satanic panic. So even if you're not a horror fan, we promise there's a lot in here for you. Like if you're coming here because you just listened to our Dirty Dancing episode, <laughs> we promise there's stuff here for you. Did I keep you awake last night? You look a little bit peaked. This is just a dream. You're not alive. This whole thing is just a dream. I take back every bit of energy I gave you. <laughs> I'm okay. Okay, so the 1984 Wes Craven classic Nightmare on Elm Street, for those who are unfamiliar, is the story of Nancy Thompson, a teenage girl who is stalked by Freddy Krueger, a burned man equipped with razor-like fingers. It's really a glove, but, you know. Nancy learns that the demon, Freddy, was once a man in their neighborhood who is known for murdering children. After getting free due to a legal loophole, he was burned to death by a gang of local parents. These parents include her mother, who's now a drunk, and her father, who is an unfeeling cop. Freddie attacks and kills her friends Tina and Rod, and eventually her boyfriend Glenn, and she is tasked with surviving. One other thing, there is a heavy dose of conversation about sexual assault, particularly against kids, in this episode. It comes up in the context of Freddy, how he was originally conceived, in the context of Stephen King's It, and in the context of the McMartin case and elsewhere. Like all potentially sensitive subject matter, we try to handle it as sensitively as possible because we love and care about you. If this is not the sort of thing that you're game to hear right now for whatever reason, we totally understand and we just wanted to give you the heads up. We talk about Hereditary in here for like 30 seconds. There's a big spoiler in there, big, big one. So if you haven't seen it yet, uh, when we start talking about it, maybe skip ahead by about a minute just to be safe. Okay, that's it for now. Uh, thanks for listening to Why Your Dads. We appreciate you.
Can we just start by my asking you why this is a dad movie? So I picked this one partly because John Saxon just died and John Saxon plays uh, the only non-monster dad in this movie. He is the dad of the main character. He's also a cop. So it's about a cop dad who is like fundamentally useless to the teenagers struggling to not get murdered, um, which I think is a very interesting theme. And I wanted to honor John Saxon. But more deeply, it's a dad movie because it's about Freddy Krueger. And Freddy Krueger is like, in my opinion, the dadliest of all slasher villains. Okay, so walk us through what Nightmare on Elm Street is about. Oh boy, this is so great. So it's about a group of teenagers who start having the same nightmare at the same time and start getting picked off one by one. And in the nightmare, there's this man with horrible burn scars and a fedora and a glove with knives on each of the fingers that he uses to torture you. I make, I'm making, making a little Freddy hand gesture. I can't help it. And if he kills you in the dream, then you die in real life. And so these kids start having these nightmares. And one of them, Nancy, tries to protect her friend Tina, who Freddie ends up getting and killing in her sleep. And so Nancy decides that she's going to figure out where Freddie came from and take him down. So that's what it's about textually. What is it about subtextually? So many things. But, <laughs> <laughs> but Freddy Krueger, I think, was originally written in the screenplay as a child molester, and then they changed that phrase to child killer. But, like, he's threatening in a sexual way a lot of the time. Like, one of the famous scenes is, like, Nancy falls asleep in the bath, and you see this knife-glove hand reaching up out of the water between her legs. So, like, he's a figure of sexual menace. He's someone who is given strength by the amount of fear that you feel that he inspires in you. He's he's a person we learn eventually in the movie who once existed in the same plane of existence as everyone else and then who the the neighborhood parents banded together and killed in a vigilante move. And so he's gaining strength by coming back into the subconsciouses of the children of the people who killed him. So, you know, I think what interests me most about Freddy Krueger in the end is that, like, these are movies from the 80s. They're from a time when Americans were trying to build these impregnable suburban fortresses where, like, their kids would be safe and far away from, like, the inner cities, whatever those are. And to sort of protect their children geographically and what A Nightmare on Elm Street tells us, which I think is true, is that like you can move your children wherever you want to physically, but like your subconscious and their subconscious and like the nightmares that that get in through our dreams and through the parts of our minds that we can't consciously understand as much as we would like, those things are always going to get in. So ignoring every sequel, which I know that you are versed in. I'm very fond of the sequels, yeah. <laughs> Just taking this as a standalone movie, is that how you interpret why Freddy is able to come back? Is it, It's sort of more of a subtextual thing. It's not that, I mean, obviously it's literal within the movie, but it's that, y yes, there's an unquestionable child killer. It's not even ambiguous. This guy has killed children. He's a great craftsman and he's made a torture glove mm -hmm. and we've like watched him commit murders as an audience already so we're like yep i know that this is freddy's whole thing unambiguous bad guy parents kill the bad guy and then it becomes very evident that <laughs> no matter what you do it's coming back in some way and yeah. then not only is the threat coming back you talk about the fortress there's a there's a scene in the movie where we see that there are are bars on uh is it nancy's windows oh, yeah. and the other irony in trying to keep out the fred and freddy krueger's he's interchangeably fred and freddy and fred krueger is such a funny name for him in this movie. Yes. but then you're locked in with your fucking terrible parents <laughs> all all of the parents in this movie are tragic assholes. <laughs> they are. It's great. I was just watching the like opening 10 minutes right before we started. I hadn't until now really been fully struck by how awful Tina's mom is. Oh, because... And that guy? <laughs> and that guy. And I was 
wondering, I was like, did they have Robert Anglin like dub his his lines in? Because he actually sounds extremely Freddy-like. So the movie opens with our first character, Tina, being chased around by Freddy and tormented by him. And then she wakes up and it seems like it was just a dream, but she she has apparently, or someone has like slashed her her nightgown almost as if someone with finger knives had her for a second. And then her mom comes in and it's like everyone's sweaty. Like everyone in that scene has like a light sort of sheen of of sweat on them. And her mom comes in and just like, doesn't she look like, I don't know, like something like. She looks like she just ate 30 cigarettes. <laughs> she's like a character in a Raymond Carver story. She looks like she's trying to get some sleep before she like does her like flight attendant job going back and forth between like L.A. and Reno eight times in a row she has lived hard and then her her man friend comes out and is like are you coming back to the sack yes oh my god he said that and i honestly had to say it out loud did he just say that (laughs) (laughs) you're immediately shown the contrast of all the bad guys in this movie fred freddie almost seems comical compared to the fucking parents in this movie. <laughs> Everyone knows that Freddy is a bad guy, but the parents are supposed to be doing an okay job. And it's like, oh, no. You know, and then uh, Tina's mom, in response to all of this and, you know, needing to go back to the sack, is like, you better either cut your nails or stop having those kind of dreams, one or the other. You know, and it's just like, comfort your child, lady. <laughs> I just listened to the Scaredy Cat podcast episode uh, with Alex Goldman and PJ Vote about Nightmare on Elm Street. Alex Goldman had said that to him, the terror of this movie is that it's about kids realizing that their parents are unable to keep them safe, which is around this around the time that that happens in a lot of kids' lives. Uh, unfortunately for many, it happens way, way earlier than when, when yeah. they're 15 or 16, which I agree with, and, and that resonates with me. But, but one step further than that, it's not just realizing that they can't, but that they're really bad at it. Yeah. It's not just that there's like an inevitable ineptitude. It's that everyone who's tasked with your safety is super bad at it. And, it, you know, in, in your realm of interest in the in the Sarah oeuvre is the fact that the things that they think they're really good at actually get in the way of them being good at taking care of you. <laughs> Yeah. And that, you know, and that you can very clearly be like, this is the problem. Please help. You need to do this one specific thing. And they're like, okay, whatever, honey. I don't really think that's true. Men in particular. (laughs) Yes. The men, I mean, the dads in this movie are useless. Um, Nancy's mom is, I think, more sympathetic of a figure because you can tell that she's like very visibly battling some demons. And she's played by one of my favorite Robert Altman players, Ronnie Blakely. I know she's had other iconic roles that I haven't seen, but in my head, she is in Nashville and she is in this. And those are her true roles. And they're per- and she was in Death of a Ladies Man. What more do you need? What more do you need? What a beautiful constellation of a career. And she's mainly just like a well-intentioned mom but like a totally unreliable alcoholic and wants to still be the mom and she's not anymore and it's like nancy is the one who knows what has to be done now and she has to sort of wrest that power away from her parents who you know who don't want to pass the torch to her right and she and she very explicitly articulates to her boyfriend on several occasions who fails both times and her father what exactly needs to happen and understandably if you are not a person who you know who can see or get that there is a dream demon involved maybe you would hear someone say these things and you would think that they are a little unhinged but we see illustrated over and over a situation in which she is like this is exactly what i need in order to do this and they on a regular basis do not come through there's also like multiple scenes in this movie of characters being like i must stay awake at all costs so I'm going to lie down <laughs> on my bed. <laughs> yeah. And like Johnny Depp does that. And I do find fault with that. But also mm-hmm. Nancy does the same thing. And even earlier than that, she's like, I mustn't fall asleep. So I'm going to get in a hot bath. 
<laughs> it's a nice mix of, of, you know, of, yeah, of just like very adult themes. It's also just a cheesy horror movie. Like it really works on that level. I was watching it just thinking about what it would be like to see it when it came out and like it works really well just as a regular horror movie that like hits all the marks that a horror movie has to which I feel like is a little underrated at this point because it's just you know Freddy's an icon it is remarkably effective I think that there's a there's a weird universe in the low budget aesthetic that just doesn't exist anymore because even Hmm. even the lowest budget movies now have a number of sort of inborn technological fixes that Hmm. yeah I mean you could make a movie for a thousand dollars now and have it seem cinematic on some level and there are in the opening scene where we meet all of these teenagers it has one of my favorite low budget flubs and this happened with even high budget movies as well where the ADR is slightly off Mm. when they inevitably had to re-record the audio because the the audio was outside and it wasn't great um all of the redubbing of their lines doesn't quite match their mouths. And so it just Mm -hmm. feels off in a way that immediately sets you up to feel weird about the entire rest of the movie. Yeah. It makes it all feel like a little bit off, a little surreal. And that's also like, that's a beautiful scene, I think, because like we've had Tina having the nightmare and then we have Tina arriving at school with her friend, Nancy played by Heather Langenkamp and Nancy's boyfriend, Glenn, played by Johnny Depp. And so we like we start that shot by looking at these little girls who are singing the Freddy jump rope rhyme, which then the teenagers are about to mention. And they're like misty and ethereal. And you're like, are they supposed to be real? Like they could be there. Like there could be all these little girls wearing the same white frilly dress at nine in the morning, jump roping during school hours. But like, I don't know. Yeah, and then we pan over to this group of teenagers who are, like, not only a little bit off in terms of what we're hearing versus what their lips are doing, but who are, like, a little bit out of time. I really appreciate that aspect of this movie. The main characters are named Nancy, Tina, Rod, and Glenn. And, like, I know that there were teenagers that were named that in the mid-'80s, But, like, those names don't make you think of the mid-80s, right? They make you think of the mid-60s, or they make me think of that. Yeah, it feels like they feel like Archie characters. Aside from how how crass uh, Rod is, like, Rod is nuts. But he's like an authentic greaser, even. Like, he's got a leather jacket he's running around in. Like, there's just kind of a mid-century quality. These are teenagers from Wes Craven's childhood in a 1980s movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and Glenn drives this like candy apple red sort of like classic American car like I think there's just a sense of like you know the imagined innocence of the the Cold War era and of yeah and of of a childhood of of that time which I guess the suburbs of the 80s were trying to reclaim like I feel like that's the idea of raising children in a way in a suburban setting which is like fundamentally pretty alien to the way that human children are used to growing up through time I think it feels like the sort of 80s white flight to the suburbs described itself partly as as a way of returning to this past that also hadn't really existed but felt like it did the binary I immediately think of is scream because Wes Craven made scream I think scream is is a masterpiece but I think that a lot of its failings are how much it fits into its own time. Yeah, it is so of its moment. It's like an MTV presentation of mid-90s teenagers. That is what Scream presents. And what a great description of suggesting that it's even more kind of out of sync nightmare on elm street does that not just with era but with every element of time Mm. in the in that scaredy cats podcast they had brought up this scene but had still stuck in my head which is one where i think it's either tina or nancy are kind of running away the faster they run the way that the focus uh, operates is they're ultimately Mm. slowing down even though they're running faster yeah i think it's i think it might be when when tina's running away from freddie and sort of freddie's advancing on her and it's like even though you see her making the physical effort like she's not 
getting really any further or like the same thing happens with nancy when she's running up the stairs and gets stuck in the stairs it's not just a matter of like it being out of sync with 1984 it's just like out of sync with time generally and that's weird and uncomfortable (laughs) yeah you kind of are figuring out through the movie like how much does freddie control what are the things that it is pointless to try and defeat freddie at because like you're not going to run faster than him and that ultimately you know you have to bring freddie back into your world rather than trying to defeat him in his own which i feel like is you know that's one of the lessons of trying to grow up too that like you're never gonna win authority from your parents by like getting them to capitulate based on their own terms or their own ideas of like what authority is because that's always gonna just be rerouted to like whatever they are and whatever you're not So before we get into dads, which I'm very excited to do, <laughs> it's interesting to me that, you know, you you had expressed particular feelings about horror movies where the horror is demons the other day on Twitter. And you and I fall on kind of different different sides of hereditary, right? Where... I also went to the bathroom at like a really bad time during that movie. Like I do think I, because remember I went to the bathroom. Oh, when we saw the hereditary girl... together, by the way. <laughs> yeah, we saw it together in Maine when it came out. And... I was in the bathroom during the part where the little sister gets decapitated. Sure. And I want to give it another shot. But yeah, my general thing, and this is, you know, a personal taste thing, is that like whenever the scary thing is revealed to be a demon, I'm just like, I don't care about demons. I care about people doing horrible things to each other. (laughs) I I don't want to imply that like demons are a silly thing to be afraid of because like I'm really afraid of caves you know, and that's an easy thing to not, you know, you could look at that and be like, don't go in a cave. So I, I bring that up not to litigate, uh, uh, <laughs> to, to, to litigate or relitigate hereditary, but I bring it up because with hereditary, um, um, I, I see the demon parts as, as metaphor, yeah. right? And it's so interesting to hear what Freddy is as a haunting, as a metaphor in this movie. Why is there an exception for Freddy the demon? It's a good question. Okay. What annoys me about demons is that like you can do like a very well, you know, thought out demon and give them a personality and stuff. And I think the exorcist does that in a really good way. Like I think this this demon is compelling because they're like kind of actually in a precursor to Freddy. Um, the demon Pazuzu and the exorcist is like really like potty mouthed and like sassy and he makes Regan like really gross physically when he takes over her like she gets all scarred and like grody and like kind of and she like you know (laughs) she vomits the the split pea soup like it I actually I never thought of this but I feel like there's some exorcist DNA in A Nightmare on Elm Street because Wes Craven very wisely was like make it gross sliminess is scary we're gonna get some slime in here To me, the saving grace and the downfall of Freddy is that he has a personality. He doesn't say very much in this first movie. Like, I think he has a very nice amount of dialogue to, like, stay mysterious and scary, but be someone who, like, definitely also comes across as, like, your creepy uncle who your parents just kind of, like, don't leave you alone with, but they won't say why. And then as as the sequels continue, like, he gets real fucking chatty. At a certain point, it's like, Freddy... You're talking too much. And I also think inevitably that, you know, as <laughs> horror movies get sequel after sequel, at a certain point, inevitably, I think the villain of a horror franchise becomes its protagonist because they are the person that we have experienced the most times and spent the most time with. And, like, we are watching their journey. We're not watching the journey of these, like, continually replaced new people. And I think there's exceptions to that, but I think that was what happened with Freddy. I really am left cold by any story where like the story of the villain, you know, what motivates them is like to be evil because I don't believe that evil <laughs> exists independently as a motivation or like a spiritual force that guides you. I'm like, "No, but why? Like <laughs> what is this about?" And so Freddy um Freddy is maybe an example of the phenomenon we see in prestige TV where, like, viewers 
will grow very attached to a character who does bad things but is highly motivated. Um, because we know why Freddy is here. Freddy was burned to death by a vigilante group of parents. And I think it's also, you know, one of the things that really endears slashers to me is that the the logic, maybe this isn't complete enough, uh, but my understanding of the the basic logic of a slasher as that gets you know codified as a form in the 80s is that something bad happened in the past and then flash forward however many years later and these people who are somehow guilty of something or who are like from the same demographic um, as the original guilty people or who are returning to the scene of the crime uh, you know so that's the plot of Friday the 13th. It's the plot of uh, many great films, including Terror Train and Slaughter High. I mean, so many of them. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. And then, like, the way the slasher plays out is that, like, the wronged entity comes back to wreak their revenge. And you're like, this isn't revenge. You're just killing everyone for kind of no reason. So I have to kill you now. The end, who can even remember how this got started? (laughs) Because, like, clearly something we were working out at the time as a country for some reason. We weren't really talking about this in a nuanced way, especially when Reagan was in office, but the implications of American violence at that time, not that it's very much different from this time, we were arming a bunch of rogue states and propping up, like, tyrants in creating various like storms of hostilities around the world that would eventually culminate in 9-11. We personally have talked about how terrorists kind of replaced serial killers in the public imagination about the threat. Yeah, good point, dude. Freddy in one way or another is blowback. You know, like Freddy is blowback for bad collective violent action to theoretically put an end to violence you know and so freddie is the blowback keeps coming back and at some point we don't really know why it's happening anymore just like violence is a part of the reality he's like cicadas he just keeps coming back (laughs) absolutely and so we do (laughs) and he's in every mfa short story (laughs) (laughs) but but we've gotten this far right and and we were starting to have at least this conversation about blueback at the time without ever really talking about about it and we've gotten to this point and we're still not having a nuanced conversation about that so it's it's interesting that that they start to have this conversation at least subtextually and we've moved on from serial killers being the threat we've moved on to terrorists being the threat that we've also created. Well, and this is what I love about horror movies is that we see horror movies dealing with societal fears before anyone else in media is really grappling with them or before almost anyone else is. And I think one of the reasons that happens is because horror movies are so unsophisticated. Like some of them are super sophisticated and cerebral and have like a theory of what they're doing. Like, But I think most horror movies are made with a basic sense of what is scary, what is scary to me, and therefore what will be scary to my audience. The same way that, you know, Steven Spielberg knows what makes his little heart feel like it's being squeezed by a dad-sized fist and therefore knows what will make us feel that way. Like Toby Hooper knows what's going to scare you, you know? And I think that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, for example, is an amazing movie that carries this very clear subtext of like, it was made right at the end of the Vietnam War. It is about teenagers being chased and just turned into meat by this family of disenfranchised rural Texas cattle slaughterer folk. They're just like, we got to kill you. There's some things you got to do in life. Sometimes you just got to kill teens, you know? And to me, like one of the threads in that movie is the Vietnam War. And like, maybe someone sat down and was like, this is a metaphor for Vietnam, but like, probably not. And they didn't have to like thing. We're not going to be standing around talking about the zeitgeist. Like we know what's scary. We're doing what's scary. And what's scary in the opinion of young adults in the early 70s is the idea of the older generation treating you like meat for no reason that you can understand. Um... So stuff like that, I think, shows up in horror as the culture is going through 
fears of a certain moment because directors who make a movie that has, you know, significant success the way something like Nightmare on Elm Street did can tap into what people are afraid of in a timely way, as well as just in sort of a, a timeless, this is what it is to be human way. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Let's talk dads. Let's talk first <laughs> literal dads and then figurative dads. John Saxon. Yeah. He's the only dad in this movie. Yeah. If we forget the the guy that shows up with Tina's mom. We also see Glenn's dad very briefly. Oh, and he yes. is like uselesser than useless <laughs> yeah absolutely he's like i don't want this crazy girl calling my son yeah this nancy is bad news tell, tell me tell me about john saxon and about dads generally in this movie i feel like john saxon is a great addition to this movie partly because he played basically the exact same role in black christmas like 10 years earlier he is also the cop who's like completely fucking useless in the end he means well um, but that doesn't matter very much. And so we got introduced to him in this movie when um, the character of Tina has just been murdered by Freddie. And so we see John Saxon in the police station and he's doing his cop business and he's copping it up. And then we get the reveal that Nancy is his daughter. You know, and then the rest of the movie is Nancy trying to figure out what's going on, figuring out what action to take, and then trying to get adults to help her. Her dad responds by either, you know, not really listening or missing the point. And then his big chance to fail at the end comes when Nancy calls him and she's like, I'm going to confront Freddie in my dream and then I'm going to wake myself up and like drag him out of the dreamscape and into real life. And so like in exactly... 20 minutes <laughs> I want you to be at the house and he's like okay great all right sweetie and then he is like whatever and sends over a deputy or something to just like go just go stand outside of the house and like see that nothing happens which is like not what she asked you for so like and it's just like why can't what why like why couldn't you just do the thing that she said would that have been so like what's if there's no freddy krueger then like what's the harm just tell me who did it i'll go get him baby just come here and break the door down in exactly 20 minutes can you do that yeah sure John Saxon, uh, similar to Roy Scheider in, in Jaws, I, I believe, just looking at him, is is around the same same age and temperament as my father mm. was. And my favorite thing that he does that reminds me of my father is he's told exactly what needs to happen, and he doesn't carry through on that. He does something adjacent and less effective. He's like, I'm going to do my own thing. I, we can't do your idea because it has to be my idea, even if it's a worse idea. It's like people who have to order off menu it's like but why <laughs> <laughs> his actions are again similar to my father's which are just generally kind of shaming everything around him right so like he's like instead of instead of intervening or understanding what's going on in his daughter's life or like why she's at this ultimately at the scene of a crime where her friend is murdered it's not like are you okay it's him directing his disdain to his ex presumable ex-wife yeah and saying like what was she doing over there like that's how he, he addresses everything non-directly in this rough neighborhood <laughs> where supernatural monsters he dresses, show up he addresses everything <laughs> non-directly and with a healthy dose of shame <laughs> yes yeah and it's just the classic dad attitude of like just constant disappointment and like with no setting of a, of of a standard just of you just fail the standard but no articulation of what it is yeah because if you articulate it then like people will have a chance to like succeed and like that can't happen the more i watch this movie the more i realize that the parents are the villains here like not just because they started this whole story by burning freddy to death but because they're just like useless they are they are of no help i feel like d wallace stone and et is a good comparison like she's someone who's like totally in the dark doesn't know what's going on and then like reacts pretty understandably when she like sees this extremely sick alien 
<laughs> that her kids have been hiding from her. The adults are not helpful in that movie at all, but like they're also not actively hindering the children all the time. Like they're just sort of like useless and oblivious. Like there's also that great scene where Elliot's mom is literally in the kitchen, like having just come home in her busy businesswoman outfit and it's and Drew Barrymore is like trying to show her E.T. And she's like, that's nice. And like, doesn't notice like that's that's the oblivious 80s suburbia parent. And these parents are like something else. Like they are just like they're either openly hostile to their children. They're an orgy as imagined by Nancy Grace. Right. Like they <laughs> they do not believe in the justice system. <laughs> They take it into their own hands, and rather than get messy with, with I don't know, why, I don't understand why the police were not more involved or why, like, Freddie wasn't dealt with on a legal level. It's very underexplained. It's like, it's a great line. I think it's, you know, well, the lawyers got fat and the judge got famous, but someone forgot to sign a search warrant, you know? And it's like, it's one of those classic, like, the wages of soft on crime horror movies where like someone somewhere technical legal technicality and the killer walked free and that someone i imagine is related to nancy's father who is <laughs> good point who is the wasn't cop nancy's father it could have been him she didn't say it wasn't her dad he certainly doesn't seem to be good at his job. and Someone somewhere, he was the cop. This was seven years ago, I imagine. Like, this, <laughs> it's probably when the kids were kids. So yeah. at most 10 years ago that this happened. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a John Saxon truther now. I think he was the one who forgot. He, that seems like the kind of thing he'd not do. <laughs> Let's talk about Freddy as the dad. You yeah. and I, you and I share in common. We should remind people not just uh, dad, dad tension and dad weirdness, but old, old dads in particular. We have this unique thing in common, and it's dads. <laughs> <laughs> it's dads. It's old dads. It's dads that are essentially a, a, a kitschy one man show, um, not unlike our friend Freddy Krueger. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a story about my dad. My dad was born in 1943. Your dad was born in, like, 1930... 31. 31. But my dad grew up in New Zealand, and so there's a couple of aspects of that that make it seem like he grew up a couple of decades before he did. Um, and so I just learned that it, he was a teenager before he, like, saw a freezer, like a freezer in someone's kitchen, and could, like, hold a piece of ice that came from a freezer and was, like, amazed at the idea that, like, you could just have endless ice that just stayed ice forever like that was a major so this was like 1960 um and whenever I meet someone who also has an old dad like a really old dad there's just this instant connection somehow my dad would randomly just as a joke that I do not understand if there was a silence in the room he'd say Charlie McCarthy <laughs> and I can guess what that... Like, what? Like, maybe that's an Edgar Bergen reference, but, like, I don't know. I wasn't around in, in 1945. Like, that, that's a deep cut. And because, like, if your parents if your parents are just a generation older, they are just about 20 to 24 years older, their culture and their upbringing, it has at least been a rerun on television that you watch on a regular basis. Yes. But when you have... <laughs> <laughs> a couple generations and that and that were that were removed from the media or or in your case also removed from the media and removed by a continent um mm -hmm. you're constantly wondering what the fuck they're talking about <laughs> when i got my sat scores back i like got a score i was happy with and i told i called my dad and told him and he was like ah you're in like flynn and i was like what <laughs> what <laughs> an errol flynn reference of by course. the way <laughs> okay so let's talk about let's talk about freddie as a dad so i have been experiencing stephen king's it for the first time this summer which is really really great i've been listening to the audiobook performed by stephen weber 
And one of the themes of that is that Pennywise's appearance to the only uh, primary female character, Bev Marsh, is sort of, it's about the terror of Pennywise, but like Pennywise takes, you know, the form of, of your various fears and the main terror in Bev's life as a child is her father. And one of the sort of, I think, repressed thoughts, repressed fears that Pennywise expresses to Bev when she comes back to town as an adult is like she has tea with seemingly this nice lady who turns out to be Pennywise. And Pennywise is like, you know, doing his thing. And he's basically telling her like, your father beat you because he wanted to molest you. And so it is from, you know, about the same moment as A Nightmare on Elm Street. And so one of the things that I've thought about a lot in the capacity of researching the satanic panic, which I've been doing for a couple of years now, is this idea of like, how was American mainstream culture metabolizing and expressing the idea of children being sexually abused, which is something that like, we really didn't talk about in a mainstream way until really the late 70s. We can see this idea expressed before that, but like there's there was a, a sort of moment of reckoning partly inspired and pushed forward by the momentum of women's liberation to talk about like child sexual abuse and to talk about this thing that a lot of people, I think as adults were coming together and realizing wasn't something that happened to just them or like was something that actually was bad <laughs> and wasn't something that would be best kept within the family. So I think Freddy Krueger is a figure of like the sexual menace to the child that Wes Craven is expressing and trying to sort of just explore like who is this figure and like what does this say maybe about the childhoods of the people who are adults now watching this movie also. As we've said before, this is a movie that, that Wes Craven is making showing like the teenagers of his time being a teenager and not of the 80s. And, and Freddie just feels like Freddie, by becoming a character in Dreams, I think feels like he's someone who's always been there. And I think Freddie maybe had the power to become so iconic, partly because he's this like gross, lascivious, unsavory, sort of sexually threatening boogeyman. <laughs> he knows your name and he knows what scares you. And that's sort of what what he plays on. I hadn't even thought about until you just said said so that he and Pennywise share so much in common. Freddy is vaudevillian. One of the other things that happens to Nancy in this movie, uh, you know, notoriously is she's on the phone and then the receiver of the phone becomes Freddy's mouth and he and he licks her mouth with a long, weird tongue and says, I'm your boyfriend now, which is so dark. Yeah, that that's just a practical effect of the kind that we're never going to see again which is like makes it even more special <laughs> when you talk about a stand-in for, for especially for like sexual violation of children like one of the most likely places where that's coming from is is at home right one of the, yeah. the like the most likely place that that's coming from is at, is at home oh and that makes me think of the fact that nancy has this you know this danger scene in the bathtub where like freddie you know she falls asleep and freddie pulls her into the water and you know the bathtub has no bottom and it becomes just this abyss yeah like the bath like how many uh childhood sexual abuse traumas start with someone giving you a bath or like start in the bathroom or in the bedroom or just yeah, and it's like Freddie is allowed to assault children in the home because he's so obviously not of the home that, like, we're not implicating parents or caregivers by having Freddie show up because he's Freddie. He's from somewhere else. Right, 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 right. Absolutely. But but if we're talking about the children's biggest fear, it's like being violated at home. <laughs> it's the biggest fear of, of a lot of children for the right reason, because that is a thing that they that they have experienced or or have come close or in the case of Bev in in it, you know, knows knows exactly what Pennywise articulates to her. I think a lot of times people know that the the one way that their parent is lashing out at them is because of something else that they're not allowing themselves to do. 
earlier you were talking about the cycle of horror movie franchises where a monster is born of some bad thing that people have done and then there's a lot of back and forth murder and then no one can really remember why it was happening in the first place and you'd said that this is something we were processing at the time for some reason can you talk more about about what we were processing at the time and then where we're at on that processing now so, Alex, what are two things that happened in 1978? Is one of them Ted Bundy related? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, 1978, uh, Ted Bundy has escaped from prison around New Year's of 1977, 1978, from jail, actually, by leaving a bunch of, like, rolled-up newspapers and books in his bed and then climbing out through the vent. And, like, of course, it was, like, something that a cartoon character would do, but it worked out. And so he got down to Florida and, according to him, was trying to, like, melt away and, like, not commit any more crimes. But regardless, he did commit more crimes within weeks. And there were two girls who he succeeded in killing and three survivors and then went to a nearby town and abducted a 12-year-old girl whose remains were later found. So it was like this spree of horror and then later in 1978, John Carpenter's Michael Myers is introduced through the movie Halloween. A killer with a nice face. I feel like we don't talk about that enough about Michael Myers. It is made very clear in the first movie, if never again, he has a nice face. Mm, like our friend, uh, in this case, Ted Bundy. Do you remember that scene where Laurie pulls the mask off for a second? Oh, I sure do. Yeah. It's not iconic for some reason. Because it's not like there aren't like maggots pouring out of it like yeah. Jason Voorhees. <laughs> Yes, so John Carpenter's Halloween comes out in 1978, and it was made when John Carpenter was asked to make a movie about babysitters getting murdered. Yeah, and so Halloween is really the first iconic slasher, I would say. Do you agree with that, Alex? Yes. If Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of sets it up and really thematically Texas Chainsaw Massacre is about like good middle class kids who get torn apart in the in the war at home and the war at home is like rural bad guys who all all the all the educated kids are terrified of. It's the same theme as Deliverance. It's also the same theme as the Stepford Wives. Um and we can see kind of earlier structural grandparents to the slasher in things like Psycho, where we have someone transgressing and then going to a rural area and basically being preyed on by someone who has a pre-existing trauma that they have wandered into. So it's something where you can you can see it coming for a while, but then it suddenly gels at a certain moment. Yes. Let's look at that progression as we have Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We're introduced to Michael Myers in 78 at the same time that that uh, Ted Bundy comes into the public consciousness. You don't really have to dive into the actual text of Nightmare on Elm Street to catch what the theme is, right? The title gives it away. It's a nightmare on Elm Street. Every town has an Elm Street. This is a terror that's happening there. It can happen in your town. Like, that's what is essentially being, being suggested. And the boogeyman doesn't get in through you going to a place. He gets in through your brain. Right, right. He can get you anywhere you are. It's an acknowledgement of that possibility, and it's taking place around the time that the serial killer is kind of starting to take shape in the public consciousness. By the time that Nightmare on Elm Street comes out, Ted Bundy has been in the public consciousness for six years. It's also happening around the same time as the satanic panic is starting to take, take shape. Nightmare on Elm Street in particular is such an interesting intersection of all of those times. Mm -hmm. Related to the satanic panic as well, you have horror movies which are kind of seen as signifiers of the greater evil in the world, not as statements about that. Right. And, and ways for the evil to get into your living room. Like the videotape that Freddy is on is like literally the same kind of threat as Freddy, according to a lot of concerned parents of the time. Precisely. And we see that same argument be made about gangster rap later which is like gangster rap which is a reflection huh, yeah. on urban violence and the conditions that lead to it is seen as the catalyst for urban violence because it's bringing the idea into white suburban homes presumably precisely so as our resident expert in all of those things in the satanic panic in in the rise of serial killers in the public consciousness and in slashers you can see why i didn't fit in in grad school <laughs> 
what is the intersection? What is this moment and what does it speak to of those other phenomena? One of the things that I found out while researching A Nightmare on Elm Street preparing to record this episode is that they changed what Freddy's crimes were out of respect for the McMartin case, which was unfolding at the time. Yes! (laughs) Which I never knew. And I was like, what? It's like in Batman v Superman when Superman's like, save Martha, and Batman's like, oh, our moms have the same name. That's so weird. The McMartin case was a case that unfolded in... 1983, 1984, that was when it began to unfold. It was tremendously long-lived when a mother became concerned that her toddler son had been molested while at preschool and took her concerns to the police and the police because they were like, we are really new to investigating child sexual abuse or like really even child abuse pretty much. So we don't know what to do. And so we think that it might make sense to send a letter to the parents of every current and recent child in this daycare and tell them about the very specific and horrifying and like parents' worst nightmare type things that we think may have happened to their children, which didn't work. (laughs) They did talk to each other. They talked to their kids. And so you have the issue of scaring the bejesus out of parents And so the parents are left to try and handle this with no support. The implication from the letter is that something on the order of like anal sodomy is happening, which is something that then comes up in future satanic panic cases. And these cases where you see it often suddenly jumps from like a parent is suspicious to like the worst thing that any parent can possibly imagine short of like murder has taken place. I think that that these stories were a way of, of grappling with a lot of the uncomfortable truths that families were dealing with about all of the known unknowns if someone is abusing your child. But what happened with McMartin was that things very quickly spiraled out of control, partly because the social workers that the police hired to question the children really only had a theoretical understanding of how to get children to accurately describe abuses that they had suffered or to accurately say, no, that didn't happen to me. Because no one knew how to do this. Like, we had not, as a society, accepted that child sexual abuse was, like, maybe something we should do about, like, the government or whoever should do something about it until, like, the 70s, which I guess, which I mention all the time because I think it's shocking. Any kind of abuse of children is, like, is a very new concept. Like, it's it's only been pretty recently that we have conceived of of a child as someone who was capable of being abused rather than just property in this country. And so it's it's that kind of extreme misinterpretation of very little material. And then it's in the media. People across the country see this. And of course, lots of people have kids in daycare. Um, but so it just, it spreads around the country. And so by the time A Nightmare on Elm Street is going into pre-production, clearly Freddy Krueger is meant to be a child molester. Like he's depicted as being like very sexually interested in his victims and it's clear that like violence is how he gets off and yet he's always described to us literally as a child killer and that's just always felt off all of the things that we're told to be scared of at this time are external to the household and i shared with you i'm starting to give this this article a little more credit now that i'm thinking about it i shared with you this psychology today article by anthony tobia and he has, there's this article in which he looks at Nightmare on Elm Street in all of the various sort of manifestations of what is happening in the movie. He looks at it literally rather than imagining that Freddy Krueger is is an actual dream, dream demon. And he makes a number of interesting assessments that I think tie to exactly what you're saying, right? One, one of the things that he imagines happens is because Nancy's mother refers to Freddy as Fred, that she, maybe she had a relationship with him because she also has his things, which is interesting. Like she has the murder glove and she has the hat and she calls him Fred so he puts together that he thinks that Nancy's mom had a relationship with Freddie and that perhaps because of their proximity this man uh, molested Nancy and it explains his fixation on her which is theories go like whatever but the most likely explanation about what's going on in here is someone in this child's home 
mm, is who mm, was responsible for hurting this mm, child. It's not like yeah. it's not a mythical uh, magic boogeyman that we're all scared of in one way or, or another. Or he becomes that, but first he was he was Fred. Right. First he was someone in the child's potential universe. He doesn't even say like maybe it was as we know Freddy to be, maybe it was the janitor at the school. He's like, "No, mm-hmm. the chances are of someone hurting the child is someone in that child's household." Which is funny cuz like I found this argument to be very silly until I heard you describe it this way and now I'm like, "Oh yeah, that's a really good argument cuz like it suddenly makes it into something that aligns with reality where it's like, "No, it, they it makes more sense if he dated her mom like according to statistics about all of this and then I, yeah i buy it you know it's admirable <laughs> that he doesn't take the magic of the situation yeah. literally he tries to anchor it in reality and it sounds like a lot of the fucked up stuff that was happening with the mcmartin case where people were taking it at face value if these kids said that freddy krueger yeah was haunting their dreams and then coming out of their dreams, it sounds like maybe some of these social workers might have taken that literally. Oh, I'm sure they would have. It's a belief system where a lot of the people leading this crusade are like, do you believe these people have real powers? Because, like, it seems like you think they have powers. I mean, I think if you're in it from, like, a like a Christian sort of spiritual warfare perspective you believe that there are great unearthly powers that can be harnessed or corrupted by human beings, then like, I don't, I feel like Freddy Krueger is like pretty realist as far as these things go. Now you have a literal intersection. This isn't even a figurative intersection. You, we have a time in which everyone is looking at serial killers as the primary threat, not bombastic american behavior abroad that will eventually literally come back to our land and and, and haunt us we, we are focusing on these external monsters when all of the monsters are at home in the homeland and in our literal homes mm-hmm. all of that overlaps in nightmare on elm street yeah it's interesting to me that we can all see the fossil of that he's not a child killer he's a child murderer it's the same number of syllables it's a it reminds you of something else oh yeah Eh? yeah (laughs) i shouldn't be so odd by that but i am (laughs) what appears to have happened is that the studio new line was worried that people would compare it to mcmartin they would feel that the movie was sensationalizing or profiting off of the McMartin situation, which is also very interesting to me that this idea of a serial child molester was so novel in this country that they were like, we can't have it happen in our movie. People will know it's this one thing in California. Right. This is the first phenomenon in which we're all talking about this thing happening. We're talking about it happening very sloppily. We're not being reflective about it, but this is the phenomenon that you will think we're referring to. Yeah, I feel like in this movie we see viewers grappling with like the white hot brand new fear that was gripping sort of idyllic suburban America. And this movie was successful, you know? And I, I feel like that's one of the reasons because the horror it explores was very close to home for the people that were going to see it. People always talk about slasher movies as if the only people seeing them are teenagers, um, and that's never entirely true, but, like, slashers are also a meaningful way for teenagers to encounter the fears that adults seem to have for them, and, you know, that's what this is also very clearly. Right. One of the essays I read about Nightmare at this time and assessing and understanding the popularity of slasher movies, the popularity of serial killer iconography and how it was all born in one way or another of the of the general popular obsession with Jack the Ripper 100 years before it. It leads with this fact about 73% of kids at the time, boys in particular, could identify who Freddy Krueger was and 63% could identify who Abraham Lincoln was. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln doesn't wear a sweater that, like, no one else ever wears. Abraham Lincoln wears the same outfit as all his other old-timey friends. 
Also, he doesn't have knives for fingers. I guess there's that. <laughs> but I'm not terrified of Abraham Lincoln. That too, right. It's not a visceral. You don't like lie awake at night worried that Abraham Lincoln will grab your foot from underneath your bed when you go to the bathroom or like most kids don't. <laughs> I want to try and close by attempting to bring this serial killer expressing our present societal fears story full circle because we see Ted Bundy rising to the forefront of the American consciousness at the same time that Michael Myers comes home to Illinois and this conception of the serial killer and the psychopath as pure evil also really starts to take hold. The idea of the serial killer as like the shape, as like the entity Um, I think is also on the rise during this time. And slashers are a way to solidify that idea and to be like, hey, you might have had a sad upbringing, but uh, we got to take you out, man. And no matter how many bullets we fire into you or how many times we chain you up at the bottom of a lake, you're still going to fight your way back to us. So like disproportionate force is necessary. Hello, (laughs) it's the 80s. My final, final thought, saw. What is Saw about, Alex? (laughs) Well, it came out in the (laughs) mid-aughts. I'm not well-versed in Saw. I've only seen the first movie 100 years ago. And if I were to assess it literally, I think it's about a guy who puts a couple of people in a very impossible situation. And they have to make really upsetting choices about what they'll do to themselves and other people in order to get out of that situation. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because, yes, it is. It is about what will you do to other people or yourself? And, like, how will you maim or kill others or maim yourself in the quest for survival? Like, what are your limits? Let's explore that. Um, And then, of course, it was a monster hit. And so they're like, we got to do sequels. And so the premise of the Saw franchise quickly becomes there's this old white guy. He tortures people, but it's okay. Why is it okay to torture people? We don't know, but we're going to try and make that claim sort of here. Yeah, that's what these movies, I guess like these movies start, this franchise started in 2004. Right. It's an interesting reflection of what's going on at the time because the slasher genre is in one way or another sourced from this idea of the serial killer and the fear of the serial killer. And then the serial killer is not scary after 9-11. He becomes cuddly. He gets Jasonified. He gets Jasonified, and our fear of the external boogeyman, what we what we perceive as an actual threat that's in the news, and it replaces the serial killer. And that threat is a terrorist, and that that terrorist is a symbol within this, you know, this quote-unquote war on terror. Ironically, the bad guy in that whole story, especially in the United States, is the United States. Yeah. Who at the time is willing to torture people, even though we know that it's not an effective way of gathering intelligence. Okay, so are there daddies in this movie? This is typically where I'd say we know who the father is, but who's the daddy? Is there a daddy in this movie? (laughs) I gotta say, I think Heather Langenkamp is the daddy. I mean, we should talk briefly about just you and I met because we were both on Tumblr. It was 2010, so many things ago, but 10 years ago, it was it was Christmas time. And I remember we like followed each other on Tumblr for some reason. And the the first kind of like thread of friendship that emerged was this fact that like we love the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, we love Freddy, and we really loved Nancy. Oh, she is right. It, we would interchangeably kind of refer to each other as Nancy as a, as a term of endearment. Yeah. I mean, I I know how great Nancy is, but she is played so yes. well. Yeah. By Heather Langenkamp. I mean, she. Oh, it it's she's such a powerful character. Her hair. Yes. Amazing. (laughs) Love her hair. I love how her hair gets bigger as the movie goes forward. It's kind of like a nice light version of those movies where like everyone is like 
filthy by the end like aliens like right well it's clear that it's humid there it's very yes. humid wherever they are and her hair just keeps getting bigger tell me about nancy so nancy's compelling to me because i love the way she's played um and also because i think she represents in this movie the idea of not being afraid of the past basically or of you know being healthily afraid of the past but insisting on going back to see you know the version of events that your parents are oversimplifying inevitably she's she's a historian at heart you know the basic coming of age story like very simply done like it can be sort of morally hollow and still satisfying um and then you know you can do something much more with that too and i feel like a nightmare on elm street is that it's not as good of a movie for little kids but you know it's it's a basic you know coming of age growing up story that's about figuring out what your parents weren't capable of understanding and trying to reverse this this generational cycle of harm and and set everybody free so nancy is my hero i just want to be nancy (laughs) amen That's it, everybody. That's this episode of Wire Dads. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for writing and performing our opening song and for producing this whole episode. There are so many accompanying texts that you might be interested in if this episode is interesting to you or if you just want to brush up on stuff you think you should know from the Michelle Remembers episodes of Sarah's other podcast, You're Wrong About, to articles from Psychology Today, which we'll reference within. You can find all of those in our show notes Thanks to C Money Burns, who you can find on Twitter at C Money Burns. Uh, when I was like, we need Nightmare on Elm Street beats, where do we get those? I immediately knew that we should talk to Mr. Burns, as it were. He's got a new tape out right now, which you should absolutely check out, and that's linked in the show notes of today's episode. Wired Ads is produced with support from Knack Factory. Thank you so much, Knack Factory. Rest in peace, Wes Craven and John Saxon. We love you, Heather Langenkamp. That's it for now, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. The wetter the Freddy, the grosser the daddy. Well, that's what she said.